The scripture for today is Romans. We're in a series here of thinking about indwelling sin or the flesh that continues to sort of raise its head against the believer. And we're talking about that today. If you didn't get one of these, um, we handed this out in a Sunday school class that we're doing. It's a picture or a rendition of it's not an actual photo of Daniel facing the lions, but it is a uh, rendition of that that I found particularly helpful because it just seems like when you're trying to face your your sin, it feels like you're going to be eaten alive by it. And uh, it's been an encouragement just to uh, meditate on that at different points. Paul is speaking as a believer in Romans chapter seven, and we're going to start in verse twenty one and go to the end of the chapter. Let's stand together as we read God's word. Romans 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members of uh, in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law, serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. I want you to just notice this uh, handout because we're going to use the prayer that's on the back of it at the end of the sermon. So you're going to want to have this in some place that you can access it. When I feel brave, I go home and ask my wife how she thought I did with the sermon, which is only on occasion I feel brave enough to do that. Um, And most of the time she gives me a good report. And occasionally she'll say, you know, you never really smiled. You never really just looked at us for a second and smiled. And so I'm looking at you right now. I'm smiling. I'm trying to smile really big because we're going to talk about sin this morning. And that often doesn't bring out a real smiley face, either in me or in you. And I recognize just even in entering into the topic, we find ourselves just wanting to recoil to say, well, or or we want to do this. We want to nudge the person beside us and say, well, I'm glad you came today. This is really going to hit home with you. But we really want the Holy Spirit to work on our lives and to recognize the enemy that's inside of us, which is this indwelling sin that we continue to fight against as a believer. So let's uh, pray before we begin that the Holy Spirit would do its work. Holy Spirit, come now and convict, challenge, open up the minds to help us see, help us to know the enemy, help us to think About ourselves, not about the person that's sitting next to us or about the person that should be sitting next to us. In Jesus name, amen. Most of you probably are aware of the history behind what some people regard as the greatest soldiers that ever lived. They were named the Spartans. Sometimes you'd have a mascot named the Spartans. And perhaps what brought them the greatest fame was not actually a battle that they won, but a battle that they lost in a larger battle or war. 
and it was called the Battle of Thermopylae. That was the name of the Greek city in which it took place. And some of you would even know that there's been a recent movie, I think it's called 300, that was uh, about that battle. And then there was a much older movie, maybe 40 years ago, that was made, again, about these Spartan soldiers that held off the Persian Empire. In the 5th century B.C., the Persian Empire was expanding. They were east and they were expanding westward. And just because of the sheer size and strength of their army, they were able to conquer a great deal of territory. And in 480 B.C., they came into Greece, sort of the seat of the Western world. And they arrived with as many as one to two million men marching into Greece And they were having relative, really no real problems conquering territory until they got to this very narrow pass, which sat a gate. And at the gate, the city gate was called Thermopylae. It was a hot gate. That's what it was called because there were springs in this area. And on one side was this great mountain range. And then the city sat right here next to the ocean. So really, there was only one easy path, and that was to go through this very narrow pass without having to go a long way around. So these million men plus begin to march into this narrow pass. And history records that 300 Spartan soldiers held these people at bay. And so they got this great fame. They didn't actually end up winning the battle. But they held them long enough for the Greeks to regroup and then drive the Persians out of Greece and back east. The Persian army just had not run into a group like this. They, they would had certain battle tactics. And the things the thing that probably marked the Spartans the most is that whenever they entered into the battle, there were only two possible outcomes, your death or theirs. And so they found them fighting with a group of people that even when they lost their sword or they lost their shield, they began to fight hand to hand. They would use their teeth until there was no fight left in them at all and they were dead. And in the end, they had to surround these 300 Spartan soldiers or at least the ones that were left. And they just didn't want to get very close to them. So these million men began to surround this small group. And just from a distance, they threw spears and showered arrows on them until they were all killed. Well, this group of Persian soldiers, as well as other people, began to wonder what made a Spartan a Spartan? How would you understand the mind of even the enemy that we're facing. And they wanted to know what kind of training tactics did they use? What kind of mentality brought somebody like this to the Spartan army? And so they wanted to actually understand the tactics of their own enemy. Today, you and I have an enemy, whether you recognize it or not, that is going to battle to the death with you today you are wrestling with an enemy that only wants one of two outcomes well only desires one outcome your death but there's no give up there's no surrender it's either your death or it's death and the enemy is indwelling sin 
the, the flesh, Paul calls it, working against us, working to take our eyes off Christ. John Owen, who was speaking to a group of uh, high school or college students 300 years ago, this is what he said. Either you will be putting sin to death or it will be putting you to death. And then Chris Lungard, who were using the book, The Enemy Within, he says this. The first step to fighting the enemy is to know it and to know it well. And so this morning, using Paul here in Romans 7, verse 21 specifically, and sort of the outline of one of the chapters in the book, we're going to take time this morning to look at the enemy, to understand the tactics of the enemy, and hopefully understanding the tactics then when we begin to engage the enemy, we'll have some sense of, well, how would we counter, have a counteroffensive against that? So let's look at Romans 7:21 because we're going to find all of our points in the sermon in this one verse. Paul says, so I find it to be a law. He's talking about this indwelling sin or the flesh that still I wrestle against. I find it to be a law. And see if this applies to you. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Or another version says, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And so I want to make three observations this morning. First, what is sin like? What is it like? We, we want to understand the enemy, so we want to know what it's like. Second, where does sin operate? And finally, when does sin operate? And we'll try to answer those as we go through. What is sin like? Paul says in verse 21, so I find it. I think it's important for us to remember this is the Apostle Paul. This is the Paul that's already met Jesus Christ on the road to the Damascus. This is the Paul who's the founder of the early church. This is the Paul who's written a good many books of the New Testament. This is the believing Paul, the Christian Paul. This isn't the non-Christian Paul. He's looking around his life and he's saying, I'm making certain observations about my life. And I find this. I find that sin is like a law. He's searching for some kind of illustration or description. He's saying the best I can come up with is it operates like a law. Now, let's think about it. it's a law. How does the law operate? I mean, if we're trying to understand the tactics of the enemy and the enemy within operates kind of like a law, how does the law operate? Well, let's make some observations. First, the law operates in this way. It commands or demands that you do what's required. We all understand if you uh, go down the highway and you see a line or a sign that says speed limit. That's a small little law on a sign. Some of you maybe don't understand that sign, but it actually is a law. There's a limit to how fast you can go on a certain piece of highway. Or if you see a sign, if you walk down your neighborhood and it says, do not trespass. You understand that I'm not supposed to enter into that yard or go behind that fence or pass that tape or that line. It's a law. Most of you, if you've been a teenager, you understand this. If you say this phrase, my parents have laid down the law, what does that mean? Well, you better do this or else you're going to have some kind of consequence. 
When your parents get frustrated, they say, I'm just laying down the law and they're going to make it as clear as, as they possibly can. Like, do not trespass. Speed limit. It commands or it demands that you act in a certain way. And if you act in a certain way, typically the law offers a reward. If you do what your parents want you to do and you're a teenager, you may get to drive the car on a Friday night. You could stay out later than usual, like nine o'clock even at night. You could stay out. And it's a reward. It's a law. I've laid down the law. You've observed the law. And now I get a certain reward. If you're a good driver, most of us know that you get a better insurance policy. You get better premiums because you've obeyed the law. On the other hand, if you don't obey the law, it threatens. So notice how the law is working. It makes certain commands. It makes demands. And if you obey those demands or commands, then it rewards you. Way, way to go. Here's what you get for it. And if you don't obey it, it threatens. You'll never see the light of day, your parents might say. You're on restriction. $500, please. It makes certain threats to you. That's how the law operates. The law also operates in this other way, and you might think of it this way as like the law of gravity. The law of gravity isn't like a command or a demand. It's a, more like a force. It bends you to do its will. It, 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 it has a force that you feel like, I cannot overcome that force like the law of gravity. Most of us would know the Sprite commercial. What is its slogan? You know what it says? Obey your thirst. See, your thirst is like a law. And Sprite understands that when you have a thirst, it's like a gravity. And you have to obey your thirst. And they want you to go out there and grab a Sprite to fulfill that. It's, it's like a law. It's a force. When, when I had, um, several years ago, when we were trying to train Morgan to go from the crib to the big girl bed, you probably know this. So it's kind of like a reward. You get in the big girl bed. And the problem with the big girl bed is it doesn't have any sides to keep them in. And we appreciated the sides to keep our children in their bed. And so several nights in trying to train our daughter how to stay in the big girl bed, I, there are many times I got multiple opportunities to put my own daughter to bed. Well, after several opportunities, you really don't want another opportunity in the same given night to put your daughter to bed. It's wonderful once. It's OK twice. And then it's not very much fun after that. And so I brought my little two and a half or three year old down to the, her room. We put her in the big girl bed. And I said, now, Morgan, if you get up one more time, you're going to get a spank. You understand that? Spank, Daddy. Okay, so I shut the door. I walked down the hallway. Before my seat hit the couch, I hear this click, click. And she's walking down the hallway, and I can see her. She's crying. And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to have some kind of, you know, excuse. She stands in front of me. And I said, you, you know what daddy said, right? Right. Spank! She understood the law. 
But it was like a, a gravitational pull. She couldn't overcome it. She was sitting there in her bed and she understood it, but like a gravitational pull pulled her out of the bed and she walked up the hallway. And even though she was already crying about the, the spank she was anticipating, it was as if she couldn't overcome it. And so I got an opportunity to help her overcome that. But yet, you, ever, you see how lo, the, the sin, Paul is trying to say, sin feels this way. It feels like a law. It feels like I'm demanding that you act this way. And if you do not do what I demand, your flesh says, then I'm going to threaten you in some way. You will not have friends at your high school or your college. You will not get your promotion. You will not live in that house. You will not have this kind of health. You, you will not have things. And so it barks out all of these threats. To say, if you don't obey me, then you're going to get this. Or, if you do obey me, oh, there's all kinds of rewards. You'll have pleasure. You'll have desire. You'll have everything you can imagine. And it entices us with some kind of reward. Or maybe you've noticed that that sin in your life operates like a gravitational pull. It just feels like I can't do anything about it. It's bending me in a certain way that I can't seem to overcome. So Paul is trying to help us. He's reaching for a metaphor here. He's saying sin is like a law. And so if we're here today specifically trying to understand the enemy... My questions for you are this. In what ways do you see sin operating like a law in your life? Where is sin threatening? Where is sin enticing with some kind of reward? Where is sin in your life operating like a, a gravitational pull and it feels like you can't overcome it? The second thing we see that Paul says is that it operates like a law, but we want to ask, well, where does this operation take place? I remember when I was a kid, I watched some kind of scary movie. I don't remember that much about it. And but it was pretty typical. There's somebody in a house and there's a caller who has a creepy voice. And the caller says, I'm watching you. And so the whole movie, you're trying to figure out, you know, who's watching me. And so the person in the house calls the police. And, and why in the movie the police couldn't somehow come to the house, but they couldn't. But they could trace the call. So they were saying, barricade your doors, barricade your windows. So the whole movie, the person's barricading their house. And they were trying to get the person, when they, when they come, come back on the line, try to get them to talk longer so we can trace the call. And at the very end of the movie, you know what you find out? The police call back and they say, the call's originating from inside your house. And that's the scary part of the movie. Because you've, you've barricaded yourself now inside of the house. So you're peeling all this stuff out trying to get outside your house. The enemy 
that we face is not primarily outside of ourselves. And this is a very hard truth. The enemy is within. The problems in your life primarily reside within your life. It's not if I just had a different husband, if I just had a better job, if I just didn't live next to these neighbors, if I just and all these external things that you think if these things were right, then life would be okay. And the problem is you keep barricading yourself off from the outside enemy when all the time the enemy is inside. It's operating in and on you. And there's no way to barricade yourself off from it from the outside. Christ came to live inside of us. He didn't come to fight, to fight an external foe. And the reason you know that is if He had come for that, He would have come in and overtaken the Roman government. That's what every Jewish person thought. The enemy is the Roman government. And he's saying, no, the enemy is you. And it totally transformed the way they thought about themselves and the world. And so we have to recognize not just how sin operates, but where sin operates. Sin operates inside of us. And that's why the title is so helpful. The enemy is within Paul says this in Romans chapter 7. Sin dwells in me. 7.17. 7.23. I see my members waging war. 7.24. Who will save me from this body of death? I just appreciate Paul. Here the apostle. He's willing to make an honest assessment of his own life. How easy is it for us to make an honest assessment of somebody else's life? And Paul is saying, no, I'm looking at myself and I, I see this inside. And, and he seemed to have some sort of growing appreciation for this because in one of his early letters, he calls himself or he refers to himself as, I'm the least of all the apostles. And then in one of his last letters, you know what he refers to himself as? I'm the worst of all sinners. You see, as he grew in maturity and grew in the Lord, he understand he was worse than what he first gave himself credit for. And that's why when you see somebody who's maturing in their faith, a, a true believer is somebody who grows in humility and not in self-righteousness. If you find somebody who says they found Jesus Christ and they're growing in self-righteousness, then what they found is a better version of themselves. And they just like to show that version off to you. They never really found Christ. People who find Christ grow in humility, not self-righteousness. Well, Paul is growing in humility. He's understanding that the enemy is inside. But I want you to notice that the enemy is sly. Just the fact that you know that is helpful. But the enemy doesn't want you to think rightly, even when you're willing to look inside of yourself. He has all kinds of tricks and ways to deceive us, even when we say, hey, I want to look inside. And here's just a couple that I thought of that see if they hit the target for you. Instead of really making an honest assessment of yourself, 
Sin minimizes your internal problems by comparing yourself to others. Instead of really taking a a strong look at yourself, you say, well, yeah, I've got problems, but compared to... C.S. Lewis does this such a such a great job in the screw tape letters. Remember, this is this correspondence about a demon who's trying to tempt this patient, they call him. And the patient becomes a Christian. And so this one sort of senior demon is writing back and it says, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. But do not despair. And I love this line. All the old habits of the patient both mentally and bodily, are still in our favor. You see, they just don't automatically transform. All, all of their habits are still in our favor. And then he's, this is his advice. When he gets to church and he sits in a pew, have your patient focus on a selection of neighbors he has previously avoided. Help him concentrate on their oily expressions. The fact that they sing out of tune. That they have on the wrong kinds of shoes. Have a double chin or wear odd clothes. He will easily believe that their religion is somehow ridiculous, while in his mind he supposes himself to be quite spiritual. Does that hit a target? Or instead of making an honest assessment of yourself, you do what John Owen does such a great job describing in his book, The Mortification of Sin. It's what he calls, you bless yourself. You look at yourself, you you see some things that need some help, but instead of really making an honest assessment of those things, you turn and bless yourself. And this is what John Owen says in sort of a paraphrase. When you come upon thoughts or perplexing thoughts, thoughts about your own sin, Instead of applying yourself to the destruction of that sin, you search your heart to find the evidences of some good quality in you. And you bless yourself. You bless yourself for all the good that you have done. Though your sin and lust do not change, you assume all will go well with you because of all your finer qualities. And then this is what Owen says, and I quote, This is the desperate device of a heart in love with sin. If it's helpful in order to have a victory over the enemy, then we need to ask ourselves, do we understand the real problem is us? Is you, not somebody else. The real enemy is inside. And for you to not look inside, the enemy uses any number of tactics But one of them is to compare yourself to other people. Another one is instead of looking at all your bad faults, you just pick out a few good ones and you bless yourself. Do you bless yourself instead of really fighting the enemy? Would you rather compare yourself to somebody else who has squeaky shoes or sings out of tune or has a double chin? Sin operates like a law. Sin operates inside of it. That's where it operates. And finally, when it operates. Paul says this so clearly. When I want to do good. 
When does sin operate? Right then. It doesn't wait until you, you, you're completely gone. Right when you want to do genuinely something good, at that very moment, sin turns on the fire. I was listening to somebody talk, a great, a pretty well-known evangelist, and he was admitting this. He's at this arena where, where thousands are gathered. And he says this, the most perplexing and humbling thing. Just before I take the stage, how often, just at that moment, my mind seems to be dominated by sinful thoughts. At the, at the very moment he's standing up trying his best to represent the Lord, it's at that moment sin tries to come in and dominate the whole conversation in his head. Right when he wants to do good is when sin operates. We would know this for a number of different ways, but um, let's just look at uh, the life of King David briefly. Sin never, never rests. It's, it's always looking out for a place to work. It easily entangles us, it says in Hebrews. If you were to look back at 1 Samuel 16, you would see that God has called David as a young man. He, he's a man after God's own heart. He's chosen to be the king. Not too long later, most of us would know that David defeats Goliath. After that, he conquers Jerusalem. He actually brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and sets up a permanent pl- or what begins a permanent place of worship. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is given these incredible promises. And then if you're ever looking for a model prayer, just go to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and David just rips off this great prayer. And then you just turn a couple of pages. After he's been anointed the king, after he's been called a man after God's own heart, after he's beaten Goliath, after he's been given all these promises, after this great prayer, and you turn over just a couple of chapters and the heading, David and Bathsheba, is like a black hole. One evening, just, just one evening, David got up from his bed walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? And I don't know how long the pause was, Then David sent messengers to get her. He understood something. Hey, this is someone else's wife. And then he sent his messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. 
the sin operated like a landmine that may, maybe had been planted years ago. And it maybe the war was completely forgotten about, but it just waited. Sin waits. It never gets tired. It never thinks that you really have the upper hand. It just sits there in your life like a landmine that maybe 20 years later, maybe after you've been called all the great accolades you could be called as a Christian, after all the prayers that you've done in front of all the people, just one day you step on the landmine and it just blows up. And your whole life and the whole kingdom blows up with you. Sin operates all the time. And especially when you're trying to do something good. Which is why I think Jesus is so emphatic. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Second Peter three, therefore, dear, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. If it's helpful in fighting against sin to know the enemy. Do you see places in your life that it operates like a law? It makes commands and demands. It threatens. It rewards. It feels like gravity. Do you see that when you, even when you find out that the enemy is inside, that even looking at that, you would quickly race to comparing yourself to somebody else or blessing yourself for all the great things that you have done. Forget about the few problems you have on the side. Do you see when it operates all the time? And especially when you're at your best. It never gets tired. It never rests. It patiently waits for the right time. So you have to watch out. You have to be on your guard. You have to be circumspect. You have to look all the way around. It will fight you either to your death or its death. And if you think you disarm it by sword and shield, it'll begin fighting with its hands and its teeth. That's the enemy. There's a prayer that's from the Valley of Vision. It's a Puritan prayer. John Owen was a Puritan in England. This is actually the end, I think, of the prayer. And I thought it would be helpful for us to just say this out loud together and then take a moment to reflect on what we've heard today. It's on the back of your insert. Let's just use this as a prayer and just a moment of silent meditation. Let's read this together. My adversaries are part and parcel of my nature. They cling to me as my very skin. I cannot escape their contact. 
In my rising up and sitting down, they barnacle me. They entice me with constant baits. My enemy is within the citadel. Come with almighty power and cast him out. Pierce him to death and abolish in me every particle of carnal life this day. Lord, we first want to acknowledge that there's no hope against this enemy unless you save us, not because of the righteous things that we've done, but because of the power of your Holy Spirit. But now that Holy Spirit lives in us and we still fight against the the waning days of the flesh in our lives. And Lord, I pray for, for, for myself and for each of us that we wouldn't be blinded to the way the enemy operates. That you would open up our eyes this day to some issue that heretofore we have not seen in our lives. We can leave with great hope that the Holy Spirit makes his dwelling in our souls. But I pray with great determination to now arm ourselves and put this enemy to death. Lord, I pray for this time of worship now in the offering. I particularly pray that you would just take the money that's given. I think about Lifeline. And just use it in a way that brings life to this city. And to others around the world. In Jesus name. Amen.